this chapter is, deals with one major event here, and we're, we're going to break this into probably, probably two or three messages, I'm not sure. Um, will not be more than three. I'm, I, I might cover it all in two. But, well, three is probably the most likely, but we're going to cover the first 20 verses of the chapter here this morning, and this is going to serve as a foundation for it, and some interesting stuff, stuff that I think will be help to us. Um, Let's start there in verse number 1 of Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band uh, called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him uh, and saying unto him, Cornelius, when he had looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Think about that. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. When the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. When he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He became very hungry, would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at, four, at the four corners and let down to earth. So coming down from heaven to earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. There came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. Those phrase words should never go together. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice spake unto him again the second time. What God hath cleansed, that called not thou common. This was done thrice. The vessel was received up again into heaven. Now, while Peter doubted it himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, get thee down, go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I know that we need you this morning, that it's in vain unless your Spirit works and, and works in our heart and teaches us your word. Lord, I pray certainly for your mercy and your grace and your help. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, may your word strengthen us, help us, give us greater understanding. May it stir us, Lord. May we desire even so much the more to truly bring glory and honor unto you with our life. Lord, if there's anyone here who maybe just like Cornelius is just religious, yet they're still lost. Lord, I certainly pray, Lord, I certainly pray for their salvation this morning. Lord, I pray they'd repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
May you be glorified and honored, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're coming now to one of the most important chapters in the book. Remember, we got in Acts chapter 2, we even dealt with the gift of tongues. And I pointed out how it's actually only mentioned three times in Scripture. And I even did a series on it, certainly demonstrating how what we see today of the charismatic tongues is nothing what we saw in Scripture. It occurs three times in Scripture, Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts chapter 19. Each of those are significant events. The day of Pentecost, and then this event right here in Acts chapter 10, which is going to be the conversion of the first Gentile. This is one of the most important chapters in the book of Acts. It is a major event that occurs here. Again, perhaps the, the biggest event to have occurred since the day of Pentecost itself. So, to examine this, we have to understand, we, when we get into, uh, uh, we think of verses like Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20. We're going to all the world and preach the gospel to, well, I'm quoting now Mark 16, 15. Um, preaching the gospel to every creature, or in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where he does command also there to go into all the world, preaching to all the nations. Luke, the same command is given to go into all the world and preach to all the nations. We see it in the Gospel of John. We see it in Acts chapter 1, 8. Christ was very, very specific. You are to take the message of what God has done in Christ, His Son, in order to save mankind to every single creature. Yet that was not being obeyed. That was not being obeyed. The command was to go into all the world, but that was not happening. The day of Pentecost and, and the bulk of the conversions uh, have been all, uh, uh, were all Jewish. Now, you've had the Samaritans come in. I'm going to bring that up later on here in this message as well. So, when the first church is getting started, we are dealing with Jewish converts. The idea of them of bringing the gospel to Gentiles was very difficult to grasp for very good reason. We're going to get into that today. It really went against everything they had been taught growing up from a religious perspective. Growing up as a religious Jew, the idea of fellowshipping, of going in unto a Gentile, that was forbidden. So understand this, in their mind right now, of course you better believe the devil is using it as well, in their mind they think they're actually obeying God by not going unto them. And we'll see that again as this message develops. Here's, here's an idea of some of the rules that were in place during the time of Christ in relation to Jews' relationship with Gentiles. Let's take, for example, Gentile dirt. When they traveled out of Israel into a Gentile nation, when they, came, when they were coming back into Israel, before they stepped on that Israeli soil, know what they had to do? Clean those feet, those shoes, those sandals. Get the dirt off. It would defile Israel's land, they thought, if they brought in Gentile dirt into their land. This is, of course, where you even get that saying about shaking the dust off your shoes. That's where that comes from. Milk. That, would, that came from a cow where a Gentile hand was used to procure, to procure it? No, no. That was forbidden. You could not have that. Not at all. Bread and oils could not be prepared by a Gentile. And of course, as we know, no Jewish person was allowed to eat with a Gentile. That was forbidden. If you had cooking utensils, for example, that were bought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water before you could use them so that you would not be unclean. Let's give other examples. An article that was in the hands of a Gentile would be considered unclean. Uh, take like they had these weaving shuttles they would make different clothing articles with. If it found out that that weaving shuttle, that the wood from that came from a Gentile land, especially in an area where there was groves or false idols, that entire thing had to be burnt 
and they had to track down every piece of clothing that, it cre- that was made from it, and that too had to be burned. So they went to these extremes to make sure there was a clear separation between Jew and Gentile. They were not going to mix. So keep that in mind now. It was ingrained in every Jewish person. You have to avoid Gentiles to be clean. The Lord is going to need to do some major preparations to change. He needs a paradigm shift in thinking. And that's what he's getting ready to do. Even though Christ is commanded to go into every nation, they're still not obeying it. Much of the reason is because of how we think of prejudice today, although I'm I'm certainly some of that was present, but it was based on the religious instruction going up, growing up. It was a lack of knowledge even that they even had at the time for that, uh, for that, uh, uh, to, to add to that as well as we're going to see. Peter is going to be the key to opening this door. Peter really, if you notice in the Bible, has been the key all along. Look over at Matthew chapter 16. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. You remember, well, it took us four years to get through Matthew. You probably won't remember this. But Matthew chapter 16, we covered something here about Peter. Let's look at this. This is Peter's great confession of who Jesus is. He makes that bold statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of of Matthew. And the Lord follows up with that in verse 17 after his great confession. It says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We dealt, of course, with that text right there, and the keys being that of the gospel. And if you think about it, he's saying these keys are given unto you. Peter has been key all along. He's been the one that's opening those doors the day of Pentecost. Who was your preacher? It was Peter opening that door after they were filled with the Spirit for the first time. Let, let's, let's go down several chapters, what we've already looked at with the conversion of the Samaritans. Now, they were already believing, but Peter comes out, and so Peter goes there. They had not received the Spirit of God yet. It was a, it, it's a unique, because right now, every time a person places their faith in Christ, what happens? They're indwelt and sealed by the, by the Spirit of God. But when the Samaritans started to convert into Christ, that had not happened yet. Guess what the Lord waited for? Peter to show up. He's going to open up another door with that key, the Samaritans. He realized this is true. God allows the the Spirit to indwell at that time. They receive it. Now we come into the last door, the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And Peter, once again, is going to be key for this. He's going to be the one that's going to open this door. So this morning, we're going to look at, we have two points here. We're going to look at the two men that this text focuses on. We're going to look on, on the receiver, who's going to be Cornelius, and the messenger, who is going to be Peter himself. So first, Cornelius. Now, I will spend the bulk of the time looking at Cornelius here this morning. Back in the book of Acts chapter 10. It says in verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, was much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Then he has the vision that he sees. An angel appears unto him. He lets him know your prayers have been heard before God. He tells him exactly what he needs to do. You need to send men to Joppa. He gives him the address of the house. 
and said, that man's going to tell you what you need to do. That's what takes place as we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. Now, so let, let's go through this and learn something about this man and answer some key questions that many people have really throughout the world when it comes to the gospel. This is an example of a man who is genuinely seeking God. Now, the word ban here, by the way, is the same word cohort. A Roman, to understand what we have here, you have a Roman legion which consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Those were divided into those 10 bands or 10 cohorts, each one having 600. So this is how, this is how Rome divided up their military leadership within their army. You had the legion, somebody led the legion. Those were broken up into 10 cohorts of 600 men. And then those 600 right there were broken into six of 100. A centurion was in charge of 100 men. That was his, he'd be a military officer, and, and in this case, he also was of the Italian band, so he's a true Roman soldier. He's not from another province. He is a Roman. He's in charge of 100. He's a military officer. That's who this man is. He's stationed in Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman headquarters for Palestine. That's where Pilate's house would have been. This is where it was governed from for that province was right here. And so we know from Josephus that in Caesarea, they had, they had a half of a legion was assigned there. Five cohorts. They had 3,000 soldiers that were assigned there at this time. And Cornelius is simply a man that's a military officer in charge of 100 men. He's a centurion. That's his responsibility. Now, within our text, what we learn about this centurion is verse 2 gives us three things about this man's life that are very important. We see his faith, his family, and his fervency. Let's look at verse 2. It says he was a man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So the first thing we learn here is about this man's faith. It deals with this man is a devout man. This is a man that it refers to him as God-fearing. He was serious about this. Now the phrase here, we need to develop a little bit the phrase when it's in the Bible. We have one that feared God in relation to a Gentile. Um, there, there were three different types of Gentiles in the Jewish mind, how they taught it. There's three different types. One, you had your first type would just be your average Gentile. Just the average guy, the majority of them. Um, you know, paganistic, idolatrous Gentiles. The second group would be what they called God-fearers. All right? This is who Cornelius is. This is a Gentile who has chosen to repent and reject the idolatrous gods the polytheistic approach of his own culture, the immorality of his own culture, and that he does believe in a monotheistic approach. He believes in one God. He believes that the God basically of Israel is true, that there is a creator. This is what this man believes. The third group of Gentiles, they actually consider Jewish. That would be a proselyte. Uh, in spirit, they would. And so that would be, that would be a, a Gentile who decided to actually go ahead and convert to Judaism. He would be circumcised, uh, the whole nine yards. All right, so they had those three different groups. Cornelius is a, is a God-fearer. They know that this man has rejected the idolatry of his own culture, and he does believe that there's simply one true God, a true creator. This is who Cornelius is. He's turned from the immorality, the idols, the paganism. And again, you, you see what's essential for salvation here. Repentance is in place here. But it's not enough, is it yet? It's not. All right? It's, it's interesting here. So, notice, this is a man who is very religious, but he's lost. 
and the Lord knows it. So many, so many people today have this idea that if you're just sincere before God, and you change some things, that that's enough before God to save you. If you don't believe me, you can look at an interview that was done by one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century, Billy Graham. He held to that belief. Look it up. You don't have to take my word for it. He actually believed that you could be Muslim, Buddhist, whoever you were, and still be saved without ever placing your faith in Jesus Christ. According to God, right here in chapter 10, of course, a lot of places. That is complete nonsense. What this religious man had was not enough. This is a man who's turned from the wickedness of his own culture that believes in one true creator. But the Lord knows it's not enough yet. Listen, you can be religious and lost. It's not your works that saves you. It, is, it solely comes down to a, a repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. That's what it comes down to. So we have a man who is religious right now, but he certainly is lost. And so we learn about him and his faith also deals with an important question that many people ask. I can remember being a teenager being asked this by friends in high school when I served Christ. And that is, well, what about those in the deepest, darkest jungles that have never heard? You're going to tell me they're going to die and go to hell unless they, unless they, because, they, uh, because they've never put their faith in Christ or however they worded it. I got asked that several times as a teenager. I have throughout all my life from people. Well, we can see the answer to that question in this example. Here is a man who has never heard the truth. There's no preacher there. Yet he was genuinely seeking God. What we know about him is this. That as God gave him light of truth, he responded to it. As he began to realize, wait a minute, the culture I'm growing up in, you're trying to tell me that this, that this fake God that was built by man's hands in this temple that's filled with sexual immorality is God. You know what he decided to say? That's nonsense. Now, why would everybody say that? Because it fed the lust of your flesh. You enjoyed it. I mean, you had your religion and immorality in one place. And, and you could get so obsessed with the entertainment of the day, all that was going on, you didn't care to think about anything else. But this was a man, and just like God dealt with every single man's heart, all of them come to a point where you can't possibly believe this is God. But this is a man that chose to respond positively to that. And see, so you know what? There's no way this is God. This isn't true. I mean, you can think of all the, from, of course, growing up there in Rome to, to the gods of, 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 of Greece and of Rome. He's choosing to reject all of this. Listen, this is true for every single person. If they respond to the light that is given, God gives more light every single time. I mean, just look at it. Right now, when we teach this in, in, in theology, we talk about how God has general and special revelation. By general revelation, we mean that God reveals himself through creation. You can look at the wonders of creation and you know there is a God. That's why the Bible says so plainly, it's not being mean. It's not making a political statement. It, mean, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You cannot look at all this and how perfect it is and come to the conclusion, it came from nothing. What? So as men respond to the light that's given, 
God gives more light. You want to know why God directed in my life, I believe, to allow me to come to the point here in the gospel? Because at 10 years old, laying down in grass, looking at creation, saying, I want to know that God. You know what's happening? That was God's Spirit working on my heart there. Look at this. That's a creator. And that was saying, yes, I want to know that. You know what God did? Gave more light. Things went into motion to get more light. That's true for every single person who has ever existed. God will always be just. He will always send more light. No one will stand before God with an excuse. Not one person. I can think of, I can think of again, when, we, when I, we did the survey trip to P&G. Um, I already knew, even though I'd never been there, uh, uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story. I don't have time for this morning. But I knew the Lord was directing us to a particular island in New Guinea called New Ireland. It dealt with my first trip into P&G. Uh, this is before I was going there as a missionary and having lunch with a businessman who was from this island pleading for a missionary to go there. Um, called New Ireland. So I knew that was the location, that was, that was the burden that was on my heart. And so I've surrendered to go there, but I have never been there. So we take a survey trip. And the ver- within the first couple of hours of arriving, of setting foot on that island, it became very clear why the Lord was putting us there. We arrived, the little, the little plane, I was traveling with a national pastor from Fort Moresby who had known of a small group of believers there on that island. I called him when I surrendered to go because I knew nobody there. No one. I preached for him in the capital city when I was there, so I called him up. And so he's traveling with me to New Ireland. Uh, and knowing that that's where the Lord is, is leading me. So we get there. We are taken right from that little dirt runway right out to a village called Sohon. When, and I have no idea what's going on. Nobody's explaining anything to me at this time. Marianne is with me. And I'm nervous. It's a hundred and some degrees outside. I'm sitting in the back of this truck on this horrible road, bouncing all around. And I'm not used to that. I want a pillow and I want it now. I'm, I'm, I was a missionary well prepared for P&G. And uh, so we get out to Sohon, we pull into this location. Again, I still don't even know what's going on yet. And there's a group of about 15 people sitting down in what was one of their church houses. There's no walls, there's a roof with some posts. That's it. And they're they're sitting down, they're they're not facing me, they're facing opposite way towards their pulpit area. And so I come in, they have chairs, almost like those folding chairs, sort of set up on the side. They sit me and Marianne down, and when we walked in, everybody stood up. Sat down, and I, and I just arrived. I've never been here before. All right? And the, the national pastor is the one who's arranging this. He knew of a small group there. Okay? And so we sit down, they sit down, and then a man who ended up becoming one of my best friends there, um, Brother Puce, he stands up. He walks up to the front, and he had it written out so he could try and do this in English. And he began to go through their story. And anyhow, he talked about how one of the relatives there had went to the Capitol, um, got his education, began working at one of the banks in the Capitol, and at that national pastor who brought me there, he got saved at his church, heard the gospel and got saved. And he came back and told his family about Christ some. Some of them had converted and put their faith in Christ. All right? So he's telling me this story. That man died, though. That man got cancer and died in his 30s. He had died. 
And so now get this. When the Lord first dealt, it, it just the timing is incredible. So they started to pray once a week on Thursday mornings that God would send a missionary. That started almost, almost the exact same time the Lord began to deal with my heart about PNG. Listen, when you respond to what the light's given you, God gives more. I've seen it time and time again there. Whether it was that Chinese man who's from this, he gave me the province he was from in China. He had no idea he was going to meet up with a missionary that day. The airport in Caving happened to be shut down by villagers. They would do that every now and then. They wanted money, they'd just shut it down. Pay us and we'll reopen it. And so he, he was leaving. He was just there temporarily on a work assignment. So he has to come all the way down, the five-hour drive down to us, the hour drive over to the other side of the island to get on a little banana boat to get to the next island so he can actually fly out and get back to China. And while I'm sitting there about five in the morning with my family, waiting to catch the boat myself to do a supply run, here comes this vehicle. He's in it. And, and wouldn't you know, we end up getting on this the little tiny banana boat, and he's sitting right next to me. This was a man who had been responding to the light that was given to him. And God arranged it in this little tiny spot in the Pacific Ocean for him to meet up with a missionary. And he sat there, not only just in the boat ride did he want to hear more about God in the Bible. We get to the shore, and this is a high day. He had a master's degree, spoke English fluently. We get to the shore, he didn't want to leave, he wanted more. And I remember him telling me how, how he was just, how when he was in school, he said the Bible was just mocked. But now he's hearing it as truth. Listen, I don't care who you are. If, if, if any man that responds to the light that is given, God gives more light, just like he did with Cornelius. So we see his faith, this devout man. We also see about his family. This is a man, says his whole house. This is a man that pointed his family to the true God. He, he's telling his family, listen, we have to turn from this, 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 uh, these gods that were seen of Rome and, and of Greece. They're nonsense. That, this, this makes no sense. And you can think about this. This would be a big deal. This is a man who is living against his own culture. Just like in our culture right now, make no mistake, this man would be considered the wicked one in his culture. The one who's not understanding. The one who's narrow-minded. <clears throat> you can see his error as well. He gave alms, always praying. Gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. This is, this is a man who has fervency in his belief in God. He's truly seeking God. He believed in a true God and it's affecting his life. The reality of a creator is affecting how he lives and it's making him better. I have made this point before in messages. We're demonstrating throughout all of world history where that's always the case. Even when conversions aren't there. That when there's a reality of a creator, that monotheistic approach of knowing that there is a God, how that affects a culture. He's responding to what he's believing. And as a result of him responding to the light, the Lord gives more light. This is his conversation with the angel. When he had looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God sends this angel to him. You can just see the fear hit him. It's about 3 o'clock. The, the ninth hour here is going to be 3 o'clock. God sends this angel to him, and, and, and the fear hits him as this 
presence comes in. The angel immediately calms his fear. And he lets him know your prayers have come up before God. I mean, just think of that. His prayers have come up before God. The Lord knows this man's need more, more light. He needs more information. So God is answering that need. He basically, again, gives the exact address of the house he needs to send men to. Peter might not have realized why God has left him in Joppa. Peter, by the way, would have been in Joppa for quite some time. And this might have been as long as 12 months or more. Peter is about to find out why God has left him there. What we learn here from this is interesting. The Lord knows right where both men are. He knows exactly what's going on in his life. Listen, God never lose tracks of us. Never. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where we're at. Don't forget that. He knows right where you're at. Now, there's a question here to think about. Why did God not send Cornelius to Peter? That would be better. Why not just tell Cornelius, head to Joppa? Here's the house you need to go to. That man will tell you all that needs to be done. Because the Lord is going to accomplish several things with this. Two important reasons why the Lord would have Peter come to Cornelius. One, God needs to do work on Peter's heart based on faith with what's happening. All right? He has to work on Peter's heart. I mean, Peter's basically going to go down and find uh, um, at least one Roman soldier, and they probably traveled with some more, showing up at his door and said, you need to come with us. But the second and most important reason why Peter would need to go there is the Lord wants Peter in a Gentile's house. He wants Peter to get in that house. The Lord's getting ready to change something. And as we see, Cornelius responds immediately. He gets two servants and this devout soldier that was unto him, that was close to him. And the Bible says, he makes a point to say, he tells them everything that happened. He's letting them know. See, what Cornelius is going to understand more likely, he's going to understand the prejudice that Peter's going to have towards him and his willingness to come down to a Gentile. And so he says, listen, guys, you need to tell him everything that happened. Here it is. Don't just go there and say, Peter, this man's sinning for you. Let him know why. An interesting side note. Remember when we went to Jonah that you picked, I don't know if you picked up on that. It is interesting. I don't know if there's any connection whatsoever. Just an interesting similarity. Let's put it that way. Jonah's second commission was from Joppa to those Gentiles. And here is Peter's commission introducing him from Joppa to a Gentile. So now we transition from Cornelius to Peter. It's a good verse 9. So the, two men, or the three men at least leave, the two servants and the one Roman soldier. They're getting close to Joppa now. So it's the next day. They're just about there. Peter heads up on the house, stop about the sixth hour to pray. And this is noon, the ninth hour, three o'clock, sixth hour is noon. And he's hungry. Um, he is hungry. He can smell the food being prepared. Um, but he's going up top there to pray. And this would be common on, on the rooftops. This is where, this is where they would pray and, and relax and, and do those different things. And so God now is going to begin to deal with Peter through this vision that he's going to give him. He needs to get Peter's attention He knows he needs to change Peter's thinking now. This has to change. And he's getting ready to do something. God does that for us. There are times if we just yield ourselves to God and trust Him, 
He does change us. It's just when we get stubborn and refuse God to allow it. That's the problem. But Peter was a man. We see the preparation in Peter's heart all along from the Samaritans to the fact that he stayed in a tanner's house who would be considered unclean. He messed with dead things. Peter has been responding to the Lord all along and allowing Christ to change him and who he is. But he still has not went in unto a Gentile. So again, he's hungry, he's heading up top, and it's amazing how Lord's even going to use his hunger as part of the vision. The Bible says he goes into a trance here. It says, as they made ready, he fell into a trance. The word trance denotes, I'm going to quote from here, a definition of a state of mind when the intention is absorbed in a particular train of thought so that the external senses are partially or entirely suspended. So what it's saying is, it's not that he fell asleep and had a dream in that sense. It's that here he is, he's up to all of a sudden this thought hits him and it absorbs everything. It's within this context that the Lord's going to give the vision to him. Within the vision, Peter sees this sheet tied at the four corners, and it's coming down from heaven, something from the Lord. And within this is a series of different animals, clean and unclean. They're all together. They're all there. Think, think of the symbolism that's taking place right now. The mixing that Peter is seeing before him of what was considered at one point in time unclean along with the clean. They're all together. Within the vision, the words come out, rise, kill, and eat. Now, to understand this, which I'm not going to go there for time's sake, but if you go into Leviticus chapter 11, this is what's preventing Peter from all of this. We're going to see this. Leviticus chapter 11 starts the dietary laws that were given by God you will see animals listed that are clean and unclean. What they could eat and what they could not eat. Now, why did God do this? This is important. This, 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 will, and this will open up all the doors of why God is right now changing the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Now, one reason, let me cover this one first. It gets brought up a lot, and I will bring it, but it is not the primary reason. The primary reason, reason is given in Scripture. But one, of the, one reason would be that some of the meats of the unclean animals would not be good for your health, especially in light of how they prepared the food in that day. So some of these animals that we see that are unclean would be more prone to carry different epidemic diseases and whatnot because of how they prepared their food. So that, that would be one reason for their own health why God was saying stay away. But nonetheless, the Bible is very clear as to the primary reason they were to be avoided and stayed away from. That is this. That is to distinguish them from Gentiles, to make them different. You'll see why. This was the primary reason. Let me quote from one source on this subject. Now, in those days, social intercourse occurred at banquets. They didn't have any of the entertainment we have today. What was the big deal was feast. You read about them all, all throughout the Bible, different feasts. So, and it goes on, I'll, I'll stop there. So you had all these different feasts that were the major social events. 
Still at this day, you had the Roman feast that occurred, you had Jewish feast that occurred. It was, those, were the, those were the social occasions to get together would be the different feasts. Those were your parties, those were your banquets, those were everything. Those were like what, what we're going to do after our morning service on our anniversary, have a get-together, what we do, what we do in our, even in our own houses, have we different families that are over. So for them, the means of socialization in the culture was the feast. And of course, in, in, in the regular world, there, it was just all kinds of food that could occur. But the Lord is going to put a dietary law in place that will cause them to uh, not be able to attend any of those. I'm going to show you that here in the Bible in a second. Look, I'll do it now. Look over in Leviticus chapter 20. We will consider today as us going through the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Actually, I think it would probably be pretty easy to go through. Just a whole lot of work. Alright, we're going to look at a couple of verses here. God is now giving the reason he gave dietary laws. And you're going to see it's not simply because of disease. That wasn't, wasn't the reason why he says he gives them. He says this. Verse 25. Well, I'm going to start in verse 24. But I have said unto you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess to possess it, a land that floweth milk and honey. Now get this. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. You shall therefore put difference between clean beast and unclean. What's the context? Because he separated them from other people. You shall therefore a difference between clean beasts and unclean, and between unclean fowls and clean. You shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. Verse 26, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. So why does he say here he put dietary laws in place? Why did he make some clean and some unclean? To separate them from the Gentile nations. To cause a separation to occur. Well, guess what changes with the gospel? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We are now one in Christ. The Lord is getting ready to change, or he is changing, the dietary laws. So he gave it to distinguish. So that, again, these feasts they were not allowed to go to. God gave these distinctions to separate them from Gentiles. But as God is getting ready to teach Peter, that's over with. That has changed. Peter hears the voice saying, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter does a very Peter thing. Not so, Lord. <laughs> You've got to give the guy, he's, he, he had convictions. All right? Not even the Lord was going to change his convictions. All right? <laughs> but really, how can those two words go together? No, Lord. It just doesn't go together. Peter had never eaten an unclean animal. God's letting him know this has changed. He says, listen, what I have cleansed, call not thou common. Don't call it unclean. What I have cleansed, he's telling you, I am telling you, this is now clean. God is telling Peter, Peter's not understanding clearly yet, he's getting ready to though, that he is abolishing the Old Testament dietary laws. 
because of what they represented. They were designed to separate the Jew from Gentile. God is now making Jew and Gentile one in Christ. This change, as we're going to see in Scripture, like when you go through the book of Romans, this dietary change became an issue for the churches to deal with, with a mixture with Jewish converts and Gentile converts. That's why you have Romans chapter 14. I mean, Romans 14, you have two different things going wrong where both sides were wrong. You had the Gentile converts who, in front of, in front of their Jewish converts, had no problem eating unclean meat from the dietary laws of the Old Testament, saying, look, look what I can do. Look at my freedom. And Paul says, No. No, just because you have that liberty to do that, don't use that as a stumbling block before somebody else. That's, your spirit isn't right. Don't use your liberty to, to cause another brother to stumble. If you know they're still dealing with it, then don't sit there and eat that in front of them. You're missing the more important law, and that is the relationship with other people. It's not about you being right. Well, we get obsessed with that. We just want to be right. And we forget about the people that are involved. And at the same time, though... Another error taking place that Paul deals with, and that is that some of the Jewish converts who were still not willing to let go of dietary laws were trying to put the Gentiles back under them. And Paul tells them, don't do it. Don't. If you want to hold that conviction, hold that conviction. But don't put them under it. Don't put them under it. So in one sense, when Peter's... And the the vision happens three times. This is stressing the importance before Peter of what's taking place. Those animals, in one sense, are representing clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile, together. When it ends, go back to Acts chapter 20. Let's look here. I'll be done here in just a second. Acts chapter 10. He says this. Now, verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted it himself what the vision which he had seen should mean. So, Peter, understandably so, the trance is over, the vision is gone. He's still sitting on the rooftop. It just ended. The same word doubt it means, means perplexed. He's like, all right, what just happened? What's God doing? He knows it's of God. He's not questioning that. He just doesn't quite understand yet. I mean, you've got to think, this is a major theological shift for him. He's like, is this true? What is God saying? What's taking place here? So he's perplexed at the moment. Listen, just like with Peter, many times when you are perplexed, don't make a decision until there's clarity. Do you understand that? When you're perplexed about something, wait Don't make a decision yet. God is getting ready to make it very clear to Peter. He's going to know why the vision was sent. He's going to, you're going to see him later on, he's going to like, you're going to see him exclaim, I get it. When Cornelius ends up putting his faith in Christ, Peter's just going to be like, wow, I get it. So when you're perplexed, you wait for more direction from the Lord. That's what you do. So while Peter is perplexed and thinking upon this, Dad, what does this mean? The Holy Spirit responds to him. Then give him the answer. He says, Peter, there's men waiting for you at the door right now. Go with them. Doesn't, doesn't explain why. Doesn't say this is about a Gentile. Doesn't say anything. You're going to go with them. That's what you're going to do. 
So this is connected to the vision that he just had. Remember why the dietary laws were given. What did the Lord say? I almost have to get you to remove from your mind, although that served a nice purpose, but that's not the primary reason. It was to cause a separation between Gentile and Jew. And the Lord's saying, you're not having it. He's getting ready to put Peter right into a Gentile's house. So Peter is going to head down. The men are going to be there. He's going to obey. He's going to go with them. Now, what I like about this was uh, one thing that, that I think is encouraging within this text is this. It's good to know that when we're at a crossroads in our life, God's Spirit is active. He already knows the direction you need to go. He does. You, you, you simply yield to Him. And, and I understand, for Peter to yield to Him, he had to set aside a part of who he was growing up. Do you understand that? This isn't small for him. Remember, there was much that took place in the Old Testament that was a shadow of what was to come. The ceremonial law was completely, for that matter, fulfilled in Christ. There was no reason anymore for the sacrifice. It's done. God is now telling him, by the way, know what else is done? The dietary laws. Because this gospel is to go to all nations. So God has prepared both the receiver in Cornelius and the messenger in Peter for one of the most important conversions that we're going to see, the first Gentile. This will now begin the gospel going to all nations. With heads bowed and eyes.